Hey friends, Pastor Andrew here. Thanks for taking the time to listen in on our sermons here at Asheville First Church of the Nazarene. We post these even though they were preached in a specific time at a specific place to a certain community of people, hoping that God still might use them to speak to you wherever you are. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 33. We are continuing... Um, in the narrative lectionary, we are going through Scripture narratively, uh, the story of God's salvation, seeing it as one connected story. I'm very passionate about that, that we not see Scripture as just disconnected uh, books and chapters, but we see it as one cohesive story. And so uh, we're returning now to the prophets. Last week, we looked at Christ the King Sunday. We looked at uh, part of the historical record in 2 Kings of Josiah. Uh, and Josiah's reform, and how he was, Scripture at one point says, basically the best king. There was no king that ever lived like Josiah, but we talked about how it was too little too late. He ruled a little over 600 years uh, before Christ came, and uh, he didn't reign for that long, and his son came on the throne, and his son was an evil king. And so it's about that time period Uh, that a prophet by the name of Jeremiah comes on the stage. Uh, Jeremiah is a southern prophet uh, because at this stage, just to remind us, the the northern kingdom has already been taken over by Assyria. Uh, The Assyrians took over the north and decimated the northern kingdom in 722, and so now we're at about 600. Um, I, I tell you, there's there's only two dates I would ever ask you to think about in the Old Testament. I'm not a big dates person. There's only two dates that you need to maybe have in your mind that are the major points of breaking in the Old Testament. The first is that 722, that's when the north falls, 722 years before Christ, and then 586 years before Christ is when the southern kingdom's going to fall. And so we're coming into this time period in the prophet Jeremiah. His ministry is around before the time that the south falls, but he lived a little bit after the south fell as well. Um, they were taken into exile. Uh, so Jeremiah chapter 33, we are jumping in into the full swing of his ministry, as we'll see. We're going to jump around just a little bit. Uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 5, and then uh, 10 and 11, and then we're going to close with 14 through 16. If you have trouble keeping up, it'll, it'll be on the screen in the, in the correct order. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, that were torn down to make a defense against the siege ramps and before the sword. The Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians, the Chaldeans are coming in to fight and to fill them with the dead bodies of those whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. Verse 10, thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste, 
without human beings or animals, and the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without inhabitants, human or animal, there shall once more be heard the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, and the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the Lord, house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. For the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. In Dante's epic poem, Inferno, uh, which was written not quite a thousand years ago, 700 some odd years ago, none of us have probably written it, may, re, read it, uh, but we might have had to in high school. Okay, there you go. I, get, I see one hand. Anybody? Uh, I see some English. Okay, okay. We, uh, I, ye of little faith, right? <laughs> Ye of little faith. If you haven't read it, you're in good company because I've not read it, okay? Uh, I've read maybe some uh, sentences out of it, but that's about it. Uh, but in, it, we, I, I, you know, it is still in common culture. Uh, in fact, a lot of people, I think their understanding of the afterlife comes from Dante's Inferno, and they think it's biblical, but it was actually a writing uh, nearly 700 years ago. Uh, but it does describe well many aspects of human life and what we need to think about in terms of eternity. Uh, but on the gates of hell, uh, Dante uh, imagined on those gates that it would say, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And I believe that is the proper definition of hell, that it is the place where hope has completely died. I define hope very simply as the expectation that the, the possibility that something might change for the positive, that something better might happen, that there might be an improvement in our lives or in the world today. And for Dante, what he saw was hell was that place where there is no more hope for improvement or betterment or for help from the outside. And just like heaven that we can, I believe we can experience a foretaste of heaven in our Christian lives by the way we live here and now, I really believe that people can experience foretastes of hell in their lives today as we look around, people living in utter hopelessness. Jeremiah was living in a time where many people were hopeless. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet, and prophets usually take on this role. They don't 
like I've said, step in when things are going well. They step in when things are looking bleak. Except uh, Jeremiah was often kind of called and ridiculed as a, a hopeless prophet, as one that just peddled bad news because there were preachers in town, there were prophets in town, uh, in Jerusalem that would tell the king, hey, everything's going to be okay. We're doing great. Like I've said, the stock market's up. Things are going well. Yeah, there's some superpowers that are mad at us, but it'll be okay. There were some prophets in town that said, oh, it's, it's all okay. But Jeremiah refused to just tell good news all the time. He wanted to speak God's word to Jerusalem, to the southern kingdom, and to the king on the throne. And it did not make him popular. And popular at all. He suffered for his message. Uh, we see that his message in the passage we just read is kind of bleak. If you caught on, he, he talks about what he's talking about is the homes of the city are going to be emptied. He's talking about the homes that are going to be in the city wall of Jerusalem. They've been emptied so that the army could fill those homes in the wall and they could prepare for a siege that's about to happen. He foresaw the ramps coming up on the walls of Jerusalem, and he called, they called them the Chaldeans. That's who we know as the Babylonians. They were the superpower of the day, and he saw the Babylonians overrunning the city. And if you think, you know, we might say he kind of was a hopeless prophet because he doesn't mince words here because he tells the people that he sees, he expects, that the bodies of the dead will fill the streets and go unburied. It's not a popular message if a preacher shows up in your church and says, this is happening in our city. Um, Jeremiah stepped into a very hopeless situation. He wasn't the only one that was concerned about the Babylonians. In fact, everybody was concerned about the Babylonians. They were, they, we don't, we don't, have the news channels of the day to see what the politics of the day was going. But it was pretty clear tensions were rising between Babylon and, and the southern kingdom of Israel. They were exerting pressure. It was clear that they had power over Judah, but it was unclear whether Judah would submit and be safe or if they'd be overrun. And Jeremiah, because of the words that God had spoken to him, knew that it was not going to go well. And why was it not going to go well? We should know. We've already been looking in the prophets. The prophets are very consistent. Scripture's very consistent of why it will not go well for the southern kingdom. Uh, you don't have to turn with me, but here is what uh, the prophet Jeremiah had said to the king in chapter 22. And you can see where uh, we had gone past the point of no return. This is what Jeremiah said in chapter 22, verse uh, one. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king to Judah and speak there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, sitting on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter into these gates. Thus says the Lord, act with justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the alien, the orphan and the widow or shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then through the gates of the house shall enter kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and horses. 
they and their servants and their people. But if you do not heed these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. This was earlier in, in, in Jeremiah's ministry, so he came to warn the king of Judah that what does God expect from you? It's the same thing Isaiah had been talking about. It's, we've been talking about it. Justice and righteousness from God's own people, that's what he expected. He talked about the Hebrew there, mitzvah and tzedakah. And, oh, there goes pastor with those Hebrew words. Let me tell you, I was watching a little television this week, right? And uh, just to show you, it, it still applies. I, there was a commercial for a new TV show that's coming on. And uh, I'm not endorsing the, the TV show. I can barely tell you what it is. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of one of these revenge or get the bad guys things. And the character said, and I didn't pick it up the first time. They repeat the ads. You, anybody watch? You just see the same ads over and over. I caught it like the third time. Uh, the main character of the TV show says, this isn't murder. It's mitzvah. And on the third time, it clicked. <gasps> I know that. He's saying, he's speaking Hebrew. He's saying it's not murder, it's justice, right? So you just, I'm, that's an aside. So you hear pastors say all these Hebrew words, right? And I think I'm so out of touch. I'm not out of touch because apparently it's on the TV still. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, I'm so relevant. I'm so relevant <laughs> with my thousands-year-old language. No, mitzvah. And Sedekah. That is what God demands. And Jeremiah here uh, explains exactly what God means by justice and righteousness. He doesn't mean some internal piety. He means for the king of Judah to protect the poor and the vulnerable, the alien and the widows and the orphans, and to provide justice to all. That is what God expects, and yet Israel did not do it, and so destruction was coming. And that destruction was complete for Israel. In 586, the southern kingdom was completely destroyed. They were the last hope for God's people, it seemed. Uh, it seemed like it was all over. The northern kingdom had already fallen, and, and now the Babylonians came in, and it was completely destructive because two things happened. Uh, and this might, the first one might seem obvious. Now there was not a descendant of David on the throne because of what the Babylonians had done. That was a promise of God that, that David's descendant would sit on the throne forever and ever, and now there wasn't a descendant of David on the throne. The people of God said, it's hopeless. We've lost. And the second thing that destroyed it, their hope, because the Babylonians came in and utterly destroyed the temple the temple that Solomon had built. So now there was no place to worship God in Jerusalem. Those two things ripped the heart out of Israel and they had lost all of their hope. Can you imagine where we started from in this story just a few months back, a few, a few millennia ago? God had called a barren couple who there was no way they could have any kids. Abraham and Sarah, they laughed, no way, and that God delivered. He stepped into the barrenness of the womb and he gave them a child. And this struggling little family through the generations, but then they got in captivity in Egypt. 
and all hope seemed lost. But God delivered them in a powerful way. God brought them out of the slavery of Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. God raised them from this barren couple into a mighty people. And through the reign of King David and King Solomon, they were one of the greatest peoples in all the area. And now, Jeremiah sees it's all undone. It's all destroyed. David's descendants not on the throne and the temple of God is destroyed and now we are being taken into captivity into a foreign land. If there's ever a hopeless time in the people of God, 586 was it. You say, Pastor, boy, this is heavy lifting for Advent. Talking, supposed to be talking about hope and fun and presents and Santa Claus, right? I think it's really important. It's more than important. It's necessary to take seriously the depth of despair and hopelessness of the people of God in Scripture at different times. Because if we only focus on the victories, if we only focus on the good times, if we only focus on the miracles, I realize we do a disservice to ourselves because when we run into problems, when we run into hardships, when we run into hopeless situations, we, we think we're all alone and this has never happened to a follower of Christ. And yet, we see time and time again in Scripture, God's people have gone through great suffering, great setbacks. They've wondered, just like you and I have, what tomorrow is going to bring They've been scared about what's coming. They've lived through hopeless situations. I wonder at the start of Advent this year um, that some of us might be able to relate to that hopelessness. You may not be in that time period now. I, I hope you aren't, but you might be. It, it might have been something acute that's happened, something that recently happened, maybe a death of a loved one, maybe an onset of an illness, uh, maybe a, a, a family member or a spouse has left you or broken a relationship with you. I, I don't know what it might have been, but something might have happened in your life recently that you say, I don't know what can come of this. I can't see any good coming out of this. There doesn't seem to be any hope. For some of us, it might not just have been one thing that happened. It might just be a slow creep over months and years in our lives that we look back and say, how did we get here? This isn't what I thought my marriage or my family or my life would look like. I've lived this long and I, I don't know if I can turn around now. This isn't what I wanted or expected. And I think for all of us, we can identify with the hopelessness that Israel finds themselves in. That for Israel, they were feeling, it wasn't just God's upset at us, they were feeling the weight of their own sin. They were suffering the consequences of their decisions. They were reaping what they had sowed. I wonder for all of us at a certain point in our lives, we have 
each been there. That we have felt the weight of our decisions and our mistakes and our sins and our lives. And I think that's the greatest hopelessness of all when we're in a situation and we realize it's all our own doing. That we've made the bed and now we have to lie in it. This is the hopelessness that Jeremiah speaks into. That we have sinned and fallen short and there is a quite a heavy burden to bear in it. But for both us and for the people of Israel, Jeremiah is not just a hopeless prophet. He's just not a bad news bear. He brings a good word, a word of hope and good news into the despair. Jeremiah steps into that place where he says it all seems desolate. Everyone says there's no human or animal around. And he, find, he declares a good word that surely the days are coming. Jeremiah himself doesn't know when it's going to happen. He doesn't know exactly what it's looked like, but he knows it's going to happen. He says, surely the days are coming. And what is in essence the hope that he brings that the promise of God to Israel and Judah, to the north and to the south, to the people of God, will be fulfilled. And what is that promise? What is the fulfillment? That finally there would be one who will come. A descendant of David. Jeremiah calls him a righteous branch. An offshoot of that tree of David. He will be different. He will be a righteous branch. And what will he do? Here is the hope of not only God's people, but of all people. What will he do? He will execute justice and righteousness. The very thing that the people of God could not do, the very thing that all of humanity has struggled to do in ourselves, this one who is coming, Jeremiah says, will finally execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah steps into the hopelessness. That's something we're scared to do sometimes. We don't want to get caught up in that hopelessness. We see people around us and we just take a step back. I don't want to get involved. Ah, that looks like a bad situation. Let's walk the other way. See the prophet of God steps into the hopelessness and he says, you think this is bad? You think there's no animals or humans around? You think the voice of gladness will never be heard here? Oh, my friend, it will. In this place, he's talking about Jerusalem. In this place, there will be the sound of mirth and gladness. Men and women will get married again. The joy will return, says the Lord. And when this righteous branch comes, when the hope, the promise of the hope is fulfilled in our presence, what will we be called? What will Jerusalem, where the people of God live, what will it be called? The Lord is our righteousness. What Jeremiah means there in, in kind of renaming Jerusalem, what we're going to call Jerusalem, he's talking about Jerusalem, but he's also really talking about this is where the people of God live. 
And he's saying that where the people of God live, what our, what our hope really is, is not in ourselves. It's nothing that we did. It's not that we manufactured it. It's only because of what God has done. That it is God who is our righteousness, who brings our right relatedness with all of humanity and with all of creation, that we can rightly live as God wants us to live in his city because of what God has done for us. I know your translation might say something different there, and the Lord is our righteous. It's a little hard to exactly get the, but the meaning is the same, that it is the righteousness that God gives us as the people of God, that in Jerusalem we will be able to say and say, ah, oh, it is God's doing. God has done it, and he has done it through the sending of the righteous branch. At the beginning of Advent, Jeremiah's words remind us that we believe and know that we have seen that righteous branch. We have seen the fulfillment of Jeremiah's hope and words in Jesus of Nazareth. That the only real hope that we have is not only in our personal lives, but for the entire earth, even as we sang, was in this righteous branch, Jesus of Nazareth, to provide for us justice and righteousness for all time. That through Jesus, we can live and we can live in a place where justice and righteousness reign, the flourishing of humanities. Things are rightly related. Things are as they should be. And we know that and we trust that because Jesus came into the world and he took on the powers of sin and evil and unrighteousness. Oh no, he didn't fight with a machete. He didn't fight with an M16. He didn't raise an army. He didn't try to take Caesar's throne. But Jesus still came and battled the powers of sin and evil and death. All of those powers that have forced injustice and unrighteousness, Jesus took them head on. And at first it looked like he lost. At first it looked like all hope was gone. At first, it looked like, oh, we had hoped so much that he would be the one who would finally execute justice and righteousness for the people of God, and yet they killed him. It looked like the powers of sin and evil had won. And yet, it almost fits Jeremiah's words to a T. In the grave, Jesus laid dead. And the Holy Spirit came into the grave. And you can almost insert the words of Jeremiah there. This place where you say there's no hope. This place where you say there's no coming back from. This place where you said once you're dead, you're gone, and there's no hope for you. That's the place God stepped into and said, arise. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was raised to victory over all the powers of sin and evil and death. All of that unrighteousness, Jesus won the victory in his resurrection. Amen. Jeremiah would have realized what God was up to. This is the same God that stepped into the barren womb and said, do you think there's no hope here? Ah, here's a child. He stepped into the bondage of slavery and said, you think there's no hope for you as a people? I'll give you freedom. 
He took a wandering people and said, we have no land. He said, oh, you have no land? Here, I'll give you a land. Everywhere God goes, he steps into the desolation and says, ah, no, I'm doing a new thing. And that is what we see in Jesus Christ, that he is the righteous branch that finally took on the powers of sin and evil for us. He is the power that provides justice and righteousness for us in our lives, that finally we can have the power over sin. Amen. You might say, Pastor, I believe that. But when I look around me, I still see plenty of injustice and unrighteousness. And I would say to you, it is in this time of Advent, we are remembering, we are expecting the first coming of Christ and what that meant for us and that Jesus won the victory. But we are also remembering in the season of Advent that we are expecting the second coming of Christ. That Christ won the victory, but the fulfillment of it is not complete. There's a phrase I like to use that kind of helps me think about that, because we're talking about some high-level stuff here. I know, I know. We've got to think about the high-level stuff sometimes. But this phrase helps me understand it. it. The phrase is, the already, but not yet. I don't know if you've ever experienced a time like that. And something's already happened, but it's not here quite yet. Jesus has come. The fulfillment of Jeremiah's words have come, and the righteous branch came to provide justice and righteousness. Jesus has already come, but the completion of that justice and righteousness is not yet. Jesus has already won the victory, but the kingdom in its fullness is not yet here. Jesus has saved us already, but yet we are not finally in the kingdom where we will live forever and ever. We are already in Christ, and yet we are not yet in bodies unlike his own. We live in this time period of the already, but not yet. That we already, in our lives, have freedom over sin. We don't have to sin. The powers of sin and unrighteousness and injustice are, are broken over us in Christ. We don't have to suffer under that. That's already happened. But not yet am I freed from all the effects of sin and evil. Case in point, I'm still going to die. I'm still going to suffer. I'm still going to lose loved ones. Those are the effects of sin and evil that are not yet taken up, but they will be. We live in this period of the already, but not yet. That is what Advent is about. Advent's not about looking around and saying, oh, everything's so hopeful, it's so great, it's all so wonderful. Advent is about saying there is hope. Things are not yet what they should be and will be, but I have hope because I know and believe in that righteous branch who will come and complete it one day. So my friend, are you living in that hope? Have you committed your life to that hope? Or are you still looking for hope in this world? Are you still looking for hope in your job or your family or money 
or fill in the blank. I believe that for every person and in every situation, Jesus Christ is our hope. He is the only hope that lasts. He is the only hope that saves. He is the only hope that we will finally receive justice and righteousness in our lives. I believe that no matter what situation you are in, Jesus is the hope we can turn to. And yet sometimes I wonder if we just turn Jesus into a kind of an emotional support pillow that we just squeeze when we get worried. Have you heard about the emotional support animals? I, I might get in trouble to say this. John, I may need you to edit this out. Uh, no, you know, I, I'm not, we, we you know, we need, uh, you know, some people do need emotional support. I'm not trying to put that down, you know. A dog can provide a lot of emotional support. He does to us, right, Rebecca? But some people have taken a little too far. I read about a guy that got on a flight from Charlotte to Asheville, North Carolina here, and he brought on the plane an emotional support duck. <laughs> quack, quack duck. Okay, I Maybe just get a dog. I understand it now. Just get a dog. Maybe a cat. Not a duck. A duck can't lick your face and make you feel better, right? (laughs) You know, some people I would have never thought, but there's emotional support snakes. And you think, boy, that's never happened. It's gotten so much that Delta has had to ban snakes on their planes. These people are bringing, yeah, good, right? I don't want to be on a, if I sit down and that guy's got a, snake next to me that says he needs to fly, I'm off the plane, right? <laughs> I'm off the plane. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm just making jest. I don't, you know. Uh, you know, watch. In a year time, I'm going to have, you know, Sam up here with me. I need to support the mission. I'm going to, you know, sow what I reap, right? Uh, I wonder, though, if we make the hope of Christ into something that just makes me feel better when I need to feel better. And my friends, that's not the hope of the Gospels. And this is what happens when we forget the history of Israel, we forget what's going on, and we forget what hope Jesus stepped into. The hope that Jeremiah says is that this one will execute justice and righteousness. And that always doesn't feel good. That isn't always what Andrew Crimmins wants. Case in point, there's this point in the Gospels in Luke I believe it's chapter 12. It's in my notes. Mine's failing. 11 or 12. Uh, a guy calls out. He sees Jesus. He's in the crowd. Hey, Jesus, uh, will you tell my brother to split the inheritance with me? That's fair, right? Mom, dad, take note. My brothers don't split the inheritance with me. I'm coming to Jesus after him. I'm on this guy's side, right? Uh, there's four of us that better be equal. Teasing. Of course. You know what Jesus says? I mean, hey, that's just justice. He's just split. You know what Jesus says? He doesn't give the guy a feel-good answer. Let me just tell you that. He doesn't tell the guy what he wants to hear. Jesus first says, who am I to arbitrate over you and your brother? You know what Jesus tells him then? I'm going to paraphrase here. Friend, you need to stop worrying about money. That money ain't going to do you any good. What you need to do is Seek first the kingdom of God. 
You, you know what, uh, Jesus, that actually launched Jesus into his very popular sayings of don't even worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Well, don't worry about what you're going to clothe your body with. Worry about eternal things. Seek first my kingdom. My friends, that gentleman walked away not happy and not feeling good. Oh, he had a hope, all right. But it was not the hope of Jesus Christ. I wonder if sometimes we need to remember that the hope of Jesus isn't for just what we want. It isn't a hope that's cuddly and easy. I dare to call it a severe hope. It's a hope for all people. It's a hope that all people would have justice and righteousness. And I dare say if we brought some of our hopes to Jesus, we're not going to get answers we want to hear. Well, Jesus, tell that person to love me and be nice to me. Jesus might look at you and say, you just worry about how you're loving and being nice to them. You leave them to me. Oh, Jesus, oh, I need this. Or, you know, it might be legitimate things. Jesus, I, 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 need to, I want to be successful. I want, I want my family to be safe and secure. And Jesus say, my friend, you need to stop worrying about your safety and security and your success. You need to be a servant. You need to make some sacrifices. I mean, what did Jesus tell rich people that came to him? You need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor didn't go over too well. That wasn't the hope they were looking for. I just want to remind us Christmas time that the hope of Jesus is very far from the hope of Santa Claus. That is not a vending machine. It's not a comfort pillow that I can just squeeze whenever I feel bad. That the hope of Jesus can be severe. Because the hope of Jesus walks into places where there's desolation and death and bodies in the streets and says, there is still hope here. The hope of Jesus, my hope in Christ, says that if I will die to myself, if I will give up what I want, if I will take on the form of a servant, if I will worry about the needs of others and my neighbor before the needs of myself, if I will live a humble and simple life of love, if I will follow the path of Christ, if I will endure, then I have hope that I will live eternally with Christ, that I will be in his kingdom. Notice most of those things I said are not the hopes of the world but they are the hopes of Christ. So I want us to be clear when we're talking about our hope in that righteous branch that provides justice and righteousness. That's a severe hope for us this morning. But it is the only hope that we, I dare put my life on. Because when I'm facing death, when I'm facing the powers of sin and evil, I don't want Santa Claus by my side. I want the one who has faced them himself and won the victory. I want the one that has stepped into the grave and has overcome. That is where my hope lies. Will you place your hope on this righteous branch? Will you place your hope on
and the one Jesus who will always provide justice and righteousness for the eternity to come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have intervened in our lives. That even when uh, we should just reap what we sow, we should get what we deserve, we should lie in our bed because we made it, your grace came into the world to intervene. That it is only by your word and your grace that we can have hope this morning. And so I pray that you would speak to us of what that hope looks like in our lives. Speak to us what it looks like to follow Christ, to put our trust in Jesus, and to follow him the rest of our lives. In this time of communion and prayer, may the presence of Christ be real for us. May this not be just a feel-good exercise, but may it be an encounter with the holy God. May we walk away changed from it. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. As our servers come down and we prepare for a time of prayer and communion, I'd invite you to, you can pray in your seat before you come down to communion. You can pray at the altar before or after you receive communion. Just take a time of prayer, reaching out to God. Allow the Spirit to examine where your hope is. No one will be listening on the conversation just between you and God. Where is your hope? Allow him to point out what his hope is for you. What it looks like for you to trust Christ and to follow him with everything you have. And then we invite you to come and partake of the communion. You don't have to be a member of our church for taking communion. All that we ask is you make a decision to place your hope firmly on Jesus Christ and only on Jesus Christ and that you'll live that hope out every day. And then come receive of the bread and the cup. We do this in remembrance of Christ. We do this in remembrance of our hope. It might strike you strange that we put our hope, we celebrate it, by saying, here's a, a broken body. And here's blood shed for you. Do, do you see how different that is than the world's hope? How severe that hope is? We're talking and remembering that Christ broke his own body and shed his own blood so that we might have hope to have justice and righteousness. It's a different kind of hope, but it is the only hope that I'll commit my life to. Will you commit your life to it? On the night our Lord was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat, excuse me, whenever you do, in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you and for the forgiveness of sins. Take, drink, whenever you do, in remembrance of me. If you'd like prayer, I'd be happy to pray with you about anything. If you'd like to be anointed on yourself or anyone else's behalf, I'd love to pray with you up here. But when you are ready, come receive 
the hope of Christ, who is the hope of the world. Amen. Church family, would you stand with me? May you be the people of hope. May you always know there is abundant room for hope no matter where you find yourself at. That God will walk into the darkest of situations and provide hope for us all. A hope that endures and will never end. May you know the hope of Jesus Christ this Advent season. Thanks for listening in today. I hope God continues to speak to you in the days to come and that you find whatever is the next step for you in your life. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website at ashnaz.org or feel free to stop by the church anytime. We'd love to see you. God bless.